morning, New Life. Uh, very good to be with you this morning. Um, we are New Life, where we are all about the gospel of grace, a grace that is such good news that it necessitates that we take it to all those that do not know as well. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Uh, even if I have met you and I've forgotten you, like I did uh, following Jeriel's instructions and speaking to someone just near me, please uh, forgive my poor memory, but introduce yourself again. Now, we've been in our series through 1 Corinthians called United as One, and we're in the final week of our first section, uh, One in Mind. And we've seen how divisions in the church in Corinth arose due to members aligning themselves with different Christian leaders uh, and the problem of this type of worldly wisdom. And we've seen through this time uh, what God's true wisdom is, which is the wisdom of the cross. And last week, uh, especially, we looked at metaphors for how the church and its leaders should relate to one another. A uh, very metaphorical, you know, uh, uh, passage. God's cultivated field, God's building, God's garden temple. And today, um, how should this wisdom of the cross be applied to the Corinthians and also our uh, appraisal of Christian leaders? So as we close this section, uh, let's make it our prayer that we really come to be united as one in mind. How about we pray? Father, as uh, many different people from different walks of life, um, in different stages of life as well, we all have different opinions on a great many things. We have different opinions about all sorts of things, and yet you bring us together in the one thing that matters, your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we might be one in mind in this, that we might be united in our love for who he is and what he's done and who he's made us. We know, Lord, that we're called into your family. We know, Lord, that we are now born of God, uh, sons and daughters of the living king, and we want to live in this way. We don't want to be colored by the wisdom of this world, but we truly want to live out your wisdom of the cross. And so we ask, Lord, uh, that you would rewrite our hearts and that you would help us, Lord, to cling to the wisdom of the cross, to apply it daily, uh, to share it with our friends and our neighbors and those around us, uh, those that have been missing for a while, um, those that we miss. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would speak this message into their minds as well, Lord, as we come to be united as one. We can't do this on our own. Uh, we can't do this just through our own fruitless thinking. But we know, Lord, uh, that through your Holy Spirit, all things are possible. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak this powerful word to us, that you would counsel us, and that you would uh, help transform our minds to love you more. Uh, help us, Lord, to love you deep in our hearts and to seek you in our everyday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What's something that people think they're experts in? You know, not yourself uh, in particular, but people around you. You know, when you hear people share their opinions about certain things, what's something that people think that they're experts in? And then once you know a little bit about this topic, you realize they're not really experts at all. They're just judging things incorrectly. Uh, their research on a particular topic consists of reading a couple of articles online and formulating their opinion or hearing from other so-called experts and then just parroting back what they've heard. Maybe, you know, as you sit there and think, some things come to mind for you. Um, you know that others aren't experts because you know the topic really well. 
could be something like in sports, you know, a particular rule, like an offside rule or something, or maybe people's thoughts about medicine, whatever it is, there must be something coming to mind that you know that people aren't experts in. Now imagine that this might be how the Apostle Paul felt as he saw the way that the Corinthians judged their leaders in a worldly way. Rather than seeing things from a Christian perspective, they used worldly standards to judge their leaders, measuring their skill in speaking, how many followers they had. These were the things that were truly important to the people of Corinth. And we've seen in past weeks how Paul has identified this issue, how he's pointed out the problems that exist within the Corinthian church. And in today's passage, Paul sets the record straight once and for all. So who judges Christian leaders? It's not the church. It's not the leaders themselves, but it's God. God is the judge of these Christian leaders. Read with me verses 1 to 3. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul tells us this. This is how a person should think about Christian leaders. He doesn't ask the people of Corinth to pretend their leaders are something that they're not. He doesn't try to make, themself, make himself and other Christian leaders into something that he's not. But no, he instead says, see us, see Christian leaders as truthfully as you possibly can. True identity and worth are only established by God. So the reality is, we should only agree with what God has already established. In talking about how God judges Christian leaders, Paul uses four different words to describe Christian leaders. Okay? It's a whole mouthful of Greek. Okay, so diakonos, we already looked at this one. It's uh, deacon. You know, we looked at this word last week, translated here as servants in our Bibles. It's akin to an unskilled servant. Right? It's where we get that English word deacon. We see that in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 5. We also see... Uh, huperites, translated here as servants again, but more like helper or assistant. And we see that in today's first verse. We see God's synergos, or co-workers, fellow laborers, where we get the word synergy from, 3.9. And then we see oikonomos, of the mysteries of God, stewards or managers, where we get the word economy from, in verses 1 to 2 today. Now, what does all this mean? What's the point of looking at all of these root words? As servants, as helpers, as co-workers, and as managers of the mysteries of God, ultimately, Christian leaders have what? Have responsibility to God. It's not responsibility to the people. It's not responsibility to whatever it is, that project that they're a part of. But no, it's to God first. And so ultimately, God remains the one to judge these Christian leaders. In verse 2, in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Those that he has entrusted as managers of the mysteries of the gospel must prove faithful. This is how God judges Christian leaders. So the Corinthians thought that their leaders should be measured based on the worldly criteria of wisdom, of eloquence, how they presented themselves. And we do this too. We do this in our everyday we judge pastors and how successful they are. I've done this too. Their vision, their giftedness in preaching, or their personal relationship building. 
But God, he judges on whether he's able to have confidence in these Christian leaders to manage faithfully his mysteries. So the good news of grace. And this will all be revealed at Jesus Christ's return. And we read in verses 4 to 5, For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. At Christ's return, all that is hidden in darkness will be brought to light. The hidden intentions of our hearts will be revealed, but God is the one who searches human hearts. And so he is the greatest and most trustworthy judge. Okay, this isn't necessarily just to strike fear into our hearts, like, I don't want people to know what my hidden intentions are, but no, this is to say God is the most trustworthy judge. When you think about who God is and what he knows, the fact that he knows all the hidden things in our hearts, surely this leaves no room for pride. There should be no pride in churches. There should be no pride among Christians. Not just as Christian leaders, but all of us, we should be able to take that kind of knowledge and apply it to our day-to-day -day lives in order to know how to conduct ourselves in the wisdom of the cross. You'll notice, though, that this isn't how the Corinthians conducted themselves at all. In verses 6 to 7, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You'll notice that there's a marked difference between the way the Corinthians and the leaders view themselves. There's a very big gap in the way that they view themselves. The Corinthians are puffed up. They have this self-inflated view of themselves, whereas the leaders are displayed as a weak and foolish spectacle. Spectacle being the Greek thing for when, you know, gladiators are fighting each other as prisoners condemned to death. It's a matter of pride versus weakness. The Corinthians think of themselves in this way, and they project it onto their leaders as well. They think that Paul should be like this. They think Paul should be superior, they think that Paul should appear wise to the world. They think that he should strike an imposing personal presence. But actually, the way Paul really is, is the way they really should be. You might detect a bit of a shift in tone in the way that Paul is speaking from verse 6 onwards. Themselves, to be smarter and more powerful than God. When they turn to their own wisdom, when they turn to the wisdom of this world, they say, this is clearly wiser than the wisdom of the cross. And this level of pride can only come from not truly knowing yourself and not truly understanding God. And so they unwittingly judge their own human wisdom as above the sacrificial wisdom of the cross. What even gives them their superior status, he asks? What do they have that they didn't receive? It's because they're in Christ that they have anything. How can the Corinthians now turn around and define themselves by their own personal accomplishments 
or social standing or their intellect? How can we? True wisdom is righteousness, is holiness, is redemption received as a gift from God. In the Corinthians' lack of understanding, this is evidence of their lack of spiritual maturity. They might think that they've arrived already at maturity, as though they're already morally and spiritually perfected. Maybe you yourself feel this way when you think about your own understanding of the gospel, of your own understanding of your Christian journey. But Paul sarcastically points out what the Corinthians are doing. Look with me at verses 8 to 9. You are already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. They're already full, already rich. They already reign as kings. Do we have this attitude in the modern church? Yes, we do. We have the same prosperity gospel. We have the same triumphalism, which believes in victory after victory and not in counting our losses, not in counting suffering with Christ. We're not so far removed from the Corinthian problems. We just have new names for them. We just have new labels, a slightly newer coat of paint. But this is false theology. It's paradoxical to their faith that they believe in, since the very Christian leaders that they say they follow are not free from persecution. If they are like these prisoners, forced to fight to their deaths, if they are persecuted, certainly it's not triumphalism. The fact that God himself reveals himself to us on the cross should tell us that the message of prosperity, of triumphalism, is incompatible with the true message of the gospel of grace. And the Apostle Paul's sufferings are signs of his conforming to Jesus' own sufferings as well. Now look at the comparison here between the Corinthians and the Christian leaders. Verses 10 to 13. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're both poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. You know, strong words there from Paul. In verse 10, Christian leaders are called fools for Christ, but the Corinthians believe themselves to be wise in Christ. The leaders are weak, but the Corinthians believe themselves to be strong. The Corinthians are distinguished, but the leaders are dishonored. One of these views takes up the cross daily. The other rejects it completely. What's Paul doing by saying all of this? What's Paul doing by pointing all of this out? Is he trying to embarrass the Corinthians? To disgrace them? by rebuking them. No, Paul seeks to warn them, it tells us. He's not trying to shame them, but to bring them back. 
It's a prophetic message of love by their spiritual father, one who seeks to call them back to the heavenly father. Verses 14 to 15, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I don't know how you feel about that section, though, okay? This final section might strike you as a little bit odd. Um, it's definitely a little bit more acceptable in today's polite society to tell someone they're like a father to you rather than saying to someone, I'm like a father to you. I don't think many people say that. You know, I think I could only comfortably say such a phrase to my son Jonas, maybe, uh, but maybe that's my own insecurity. Now, Paul's pastoral heart is truly to see the Corinthians as his beloved children. He looks upon them like his beloved children. He has a deep and a genuine love and a care for them. In a relational sense, he thinks of himself in this way when it comes to all of the churches that he's planted. He thinks of himself as spiritual father. I know my old pastor in Melbourne, you know, who planted the church that he's been at. Um, he's been there for about 30 years, 30 plus years. So he would think of himself in this way because he knows he's baptized the kids and the grandkids of the people that he's walked in the Christian journey with. And so he can see himself in this way. And so Paul's fatherly heart causes him to now urge them to apply this one thing. Imitate me. Verses 16 to 17, therefore I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Everything that we've read in this letter to the Corinthians up to this point can be summarized in this one command that Paul gives. Imitate me. Here's the irony. Christian leaders are not the ones that we follow. We've seen as much. We've seen this from the first four chapters. We've seen the problems that this brings up in the Corinthian church. It makes no sense for us to give this imbalanced loyalty or this honor to leaders, just as it makes no sense for us to tear them down. No, it's Christ. He's the one that we honor. And yet, if we really want to follow Christian leaders... If we truly want to commit ourselves to Christian leaders, we'll end up here. We will imitate this apostle as he imitates Christ. Now, a bit of balance here. Paul is not commanding us and the Corinthians to imitate every single thing about his life. You know, otherwise, none of us would have children. None of us would be married. Uh, this one discrete statement, it comes in the context of his whole letter. We turn to chapters 7 to 10, and we see that there's places where he talks about exercising sound judgment, you know, on matters of individual conscience, on secondary issues. And so we need to put this command to imitate in context. But an imitation of Paul will result in this, in thinking and conduct that will end up, and this boasting, and this worldly wisdom, this division in Corinth. Paul's talked about being a fool for Christ, about being weak and dishonored. Imitate him in this. Paul has talked about how all that he has and all that he is comes as a gift from God. Imitate him. Paul has compared himself and his fellow leaders to laborers, unskilled servants, managers of a wisdom that is not their own. Imitate him. 
Get rid of everything that is opposite to this and imitate him as he embraces the cross of Christ in weakness, in fear, and in great trembling. New Life, this is a message that we too receive from this letter to the Corinthians. We're to imitate him in renouncing the wisdom of this world and instead embracing a life that's cross-shaped, a sacrificial life. We're to walk daily in pleasing God, and as we imitate Paul in this, we live out a life that's obedient in God and shaped by the gospel of grace. Why don't we pray for this? Father, we seek real change in our lives. We seek to know what it means to follow you. We seek to know what it means to love you, to seek you, to make you the center of it all. We seek to know what it means to imitate Paul as he imitates you. We want to be great imitators of your son, Jesus. We want to look more and more like your son every day. Would you help us in this endeavor? Many of us have lived many years trying to change on our own, and yet the wisdom of this world, our own intellect, our own desires, they don't change who we are fundamentally. But you do a work that transcends all of the work that we can do, because you change our very nature. You call us into your family. You save us from our sin, our death, and you give us new life as your son, as your daughter. Surely this work is not too hard for you. And so we ask, Lord, through your spirit, in the name of your son, that you would change us, that you would change the desires of our hearts, that you would help us, Lord, to live a life that is sacrificial, that is cross-shaped, that seeks to make the wisdom of the cross our everyday. Would you help us to do this? Would you cause us to glorify you in everything that we do? May we live to your glory. May we live loving you more and more every moment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.